want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to join you in this series and to speak with you and to, uh, to discuss the scriptures with you tonight. Uh, it's always a pleasure to be here at the university. Diane and I enjoy it not only because we get to be with you good folks, but we get to see our grandkids. Uh, and that's always a pleasure. Uh, I know this is a very uh, loving congregation. Uh, I've come here several times and been acquainted for several years. But I know it's a loving family because you treat my family with such love. And I know that's a testimony to that. Uh, I, I have watched over the years the way you have uh, treated uh, those that we love the greatest. Uh, and it's always uh, warmed my heart. Uh, one thing that I think I really uh, appreciate uh, is the way you treated my grandchildren. And now uh, I have two grandsons that are also brothers in Christ who were uh, made Christians right here. And that's, uh, that's really a uh, a really exciting thing for Diane and I. There are a lot of things in this world that make you think there's not much hope, or maybe that don't inspire much hope. But when it comes to seeing your children and your grandchildren become Christians, uh, there's nothing that gives you greater hope or inspires hope for the future than that. And I know you've been a big part of that for Diane and I, uh, and I appreciate that very much. As Brother Steve mentioned, we're going to talk about uh, struggling with the realization that people don't care. And I suppose my focus of my remarks and the things I want to talk, uh, put our attention towards tonight is just is not in a general way people don't care. There are a lot of things people don't care about. And we might conclude that, there, that a society itself has become more inward and selfish and not reaching out to others in a lot of different areas. But for the Christian, one of the aspects of that struggle that is most acute is the aspect that no one wants to listen to the gospel. No one cares about what God says, what God is doing, or what God is going to do. And they don't care enough to want to hear what God has to say. So for the Christian, that can be a very difficult thing. And I'd like to talk for a few moments this evening about how we deal with that and what our perspective on that should be. We're going to start at a familiar place, uh, and that's Acts chapter 8. This is a familiar Bible event, maybe in terms of speaking about evangelism, maybe one of the most familiar events uh, to you and I. In the latter part of this chapter, Luke records a conversion, someone who is, uh, who is not a Christian and becomes a Christian, and we go through this, this very, I think, uh, phenomenal event, looking at the character of the conversion looking at what happens and what's said and takes place. And we use this, of course, as a touchstone to talk to others about how they ought to become Christians. And so the Ethiopian's on his way back from Jerusalem, where the gospel had already made an appearance, and he's coming back from Jerusalem, and he's reading Scripture in his chariot. And as he's reading, through the direction of the Holy Spirit, Philip overtakes him in the chariot, and they begin a conversation. It says in verse 30 that Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. And the place in the scriptures where he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth, and in his humiliation his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from, from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and asked, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning at this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. One of the phenomenal things about this event, I think, uh, as compared to other conversion stories in the scriptures, particularly in the book of Acts, 
is that there's no miracle here. Uh, If you discount the aspect that the Spirit sent Philip where he needed to be, the Ethiopian doesn't see anything miraculous take place like those of the day of Pentecost or the Philippian jailer or others. But what you have here in this particular occasion is you have just the Scripture and someone who teaches the Scripture. And the person then who's taught the Scripture from the Scripture becomes a Christian. And what was this man reading? Well, the Scripture tells us he was reading from Isaiah chapter 53. And there again it is a passage that we're somewhat familiar with. Maybe we've read it often at the, when we take the Lord's Supper or in other places we're talking about the crucifixion. The Old Testament and the New Testament, Isaiah 53, is a very important passage. And if I ask you who Isaiah 53 was describing in, this, in his writing, you would say, well, Isaiah is describing the Messiah. He's talking about Jesus. And you'd be right about that. It's not hard for us to look back on what's said here and realize that the prophet's talking about Jesus Christ. He's talking about Jesus when he went to the cross. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. That's Jesus. But this was a difficult text for those who were not on the other side of the cross, who were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, and who had preconceived ideas or perceptions of what the Messiah would be like and what his mission would be. To talk about suffering and what Isaiah describes here, the suffering servant that that Isaiah had been speaking about for some passages now, would have been difficult. And so the... The Ethiopian asked a legitimate question. Who's he talking about? Himself or some other man? The previous text of Isaiah, if we were to look back a little bit, would show us that Isaiah was describing the announcement of the coming of the Messiah. That he was talking about the coming of Jesus under the banner of suffering and under the banner of one who was going to be exalted by God. But we might notice... In Isaiah 53, in that very familiar passage, that the text actually begins with this question. Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, that fascinates me that here in a text that describes the Messiah, a, a story that's going to be used, a passage is going to be used in the very context of conversion in Acts chapter 8, that Isaiah begins by saying, who has believed our report? That rhetorical question, in the beginning of this passage, I believe, is to make known that what Isaiah was getting ready to say, and in some senses what he already said, was not going to easily be received by those who were going to receive it. This rhetorical question, at the place in which it's found, might be paraphrased like this. Listen, I'm going to tell you a story, a story about the coming servant of God, the Messiah of Israel, but you're not going to believe it. That's how Isaiah starts that. Who will believe our report? So you put that in the context. The coming of the Savior is good news. The coming the Savior is going to redeem Israel. He is going to forgive sins. He's going to bear the iniquities of others. He's going to suffer on our behalf. He's going to save us. If the story of Jesus is good news, then why would the prophet tell us no one's going to believe it? Certainly, if it's good news, people will accept the message, won't they? Why is it that the gospel is not received more than it is. Why is it an unbelievable story? The answer to that rhetorical question, who has believed our report, is that hardly anyone has believed the report. And I believe to some extent that's what Isaiah is getting at in that question. 
Now you go back to Acts chapter 8. We read the rest of the story of Acts chapter 8. And again, we're familiar with what takes place here. Philip's teaching ends with the reception of the message. The Ethiopian becomes a Christian. They're going along. Here's water. What hinders me from being baptized right now? How many times have you heard that question? You've been preaching someone to someone or you've been teaching someone over the kitchen table and they say, can I get baptized right now? If you hear that, make your heart flutter a little bit, get excited. That's the good news. When it's accepted, when it's believed and when it's obeyed. We might conclude that we don't get that question very much anymore because we live in a world where people don't care anymore. Do we struggle with that conclusion? Do we struggle with the fact that people don't want to hear the gospel? And what should be our perspective? And the answer to the question, who will believe the report? Well, I want to look at it a couple different ways. One is, I think, what we need to do. We need to recognize the paradigm of unbelief. And realize that what we face in our own society is not unique to us, nor the beginning you see, of something that has never happened before or that in some way is different than the preaching of the gospel before. What I want us to do at the beginning of this is to recognize that if we're going to go out and take the gospel to an unconcerned world, then we need to face, we need to face the facts of evangelism. That most people are not interested in the gospel. And I think we recognize that in a general way, maybe from our own experience, from going out to talk to people, from the general conduct of the world, or from the perspective of the world that we're able to acquire about the world around us. But apart from our own observation and our own experience, Jesus confirms for us, as he did for the people of his own day, that the story of salvation will not be received by many. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. What Jesus does in this very simple passage is he divides humanity into two different groups, two distinct groups. One group is traveling, you see, down this path where they're going to go their own way. They're going to follow their own instincts. They're going to serve themselves. They have no interest in spiritual things. They're going to live life the way they want to live it, and they're not going to think about what's going to happen later on. And in described in many different ways, these people, you see, will go down a path that Jesus says is a path of destruction. In the end, those folks will be lost because they are sinners and they're separated from God and they don't come to God because they have no interest in God. That's the majority of the people. And then the second group, the minority of the group, are those, you see, who are no less sinners than the first group, but along the way they desire, they desire to please God and they put their mind on spiritual things and they choose to travel a more difficult pathway, but only because that pathway leads to God, it leads to life and thereby they will find it. How many will find it? Only a few. Only a few. So Jesus himself tells us that most people are not going to choose to follow him. And Jesus opens his, John opens his gospel of the life of Jesus with this description, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And all through the story of Jesus' life, there is this opposition. There is this distinction between those who will follow him, ultimately follow him to the end, and the majority of people who will not. We know that's true in our own experience, don't we? If we've gone out to teach the truth. Most will refuse the message. 
Some will refuse it right off the bat. But even if you get a chance to talk to someone who shows a little bit of interest and you begin to teach them the gospel or introduce them to scriptures, even among those people that have initial interest, many of those people never follow through, either never become Christians or don't stay Christians. There are several times in my own personal experience when I've gotten very excited about maybe a person or a couple because they begin to show interest in spiritual things and they let me come into their home or we have a, we have home study together, we open the scriptures and we, they see things in the scriptures they've never seen before, but then after I get all excited and I think it's going somewhere, then lo and behold, something happens and I get a phone call that says, nah, I don't think we want to do this anymore. We're not interested. That's disappointing. People don't show any interest. Even those people that you think should care, or maybe you think will care in the end, they don't care. Now, what's our reaction to that? One of the first reactions, I think, that comes to those situations is we begin to doubt our ability. Dave, you messed it up. You didn't say the right thing. You didn't say the right thing at the right time. You didn't deal with this scripture enough, or you dealt with this scripture too much in a different way. That you've done something wrong, that you're not a good teacher. And so you doubt yourself. And so we may conclude from that that, well, I'm not good enough to do this. I'm not going to do it anymore. And we may quit. Or we maybe just change our focus. We decide, well, maybe I won't say that anymore because when I say that, people walk away. Or maybe we just accept the situation. If those folks out there are lost, we're not lost, but they're lost and they don't care. So I'm not going to worry about them anymore. And we focus on ourselves. That's sometimes the struggle, isn't it, when we see people reject the message. When Jesus taught the multitudes, many times there was initial following. Luke chapter 12, verse 1, it tells us there that there were so many people following Jesus, they were trampling over one another, pushing each other down to get to him. I think about how exciting that must have been for the Lord. When you look around and see all these people pushing each other to try to get to him and trampling over one another. But then later on, in John, as John chapter 6 tells us about that continuing circumstance of Jesus' popularity, Jesus feeds the 5,000, and then he goes, on the other side of the, uh, goes over on the other side of the lake, and they're so excited they follow him over there, and they, they get on the other side, and Jesus says, you're just coming to me because I feed you. There's more to it than this. And then he gives a very difficult, exacting lesson on discipleship, where he says, you must eat my flesh and drink my flood in John chapter 6. And the disciples say, this is teaching is hard, verse 60. This teaching is hard. Who can accept it? And what's the end result of all of that? You skip to the last part of the chapter, and there are those discouraging words. Many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. From people trampling on top of themselves to get to you to the fact that people were leaving in droves. That's what Jesus, that's what Jesus' ministry, wasn't it? We often contemplate sometimes the tremendous response of the initial preaching of the gospel in the book of Acts. And it's phenomenal. If Peter preached the gospel, a single sermon, before he ever got finished, people were obeying the gospel. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, it tells us that 3,000 people were baptized on that day. The Lord added to his people, added them to the church. In Acts chapter 4, verse 4, as we continue on with the progress of the church at Jerusalem, it tells us the number of disciples grew to be 5,000 men. If we extrapolate that out, we might conclude that the church at Jerusalem was maybe 10,000 strong by the time you get to Acts chapter 4 and 5. 
And we think, oh, wow, look at the gospel. So many people were obeying the gospel, and it was. It's phenomenal. But when placed in the context of all the people that visited Jerusalem at that time, and the, the, the ones that were gathered there at that feast, some scholars estimate that there were between one and three million people in the city of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Now, I'm not very good at math. If you take 10,000 and you divide it into a million, it's 1%. 1%. So even when you look at what we think is the greatest phenomenal success of the church in, the early, in its early beginnings in the book of Acts, Jesus' words ring true. The paradigm of unbelief is still there. In fact, it's at the very beginning that most people will not believe and that the church is an enormous minority among those who will not listen to the word of God or who are not Christians. So again, we face the facts. Even when we te- I have the opportunity to teach others, many will not respond to the truth that they hear. Many will reject the call when it calls upon them to change their lives. And they stubbornly refuse to give up denominational error or whatever they, have, they are called to come out of. And that's the nature of the conflict. And as we begin to go out and teach the world, we have to anticipate that. Now, why am I saying all this? Why all this negativity? Why all this dark picture? Am I trying to convince folks that we shouldn't teach? Am I trying to discourage you or encourage you to teach the truth? It may seem discouraging to us when we face the facts. But let me suggest you something that's more discouraging. And that is not knowing the facts up front. And then seeing it happen. Believing that the gospel is so important to you and that that it's such a big part of your life that when you go out to tell other people they're going to be as excited as you are about it. And so you go out to teach them and then they're not excited about it. And they don't hang on and they don't obey the Lord. And so you give up or you turn away. Not facing the fact then becomes the real source of the discouragement. Because we go out excited and interested. We come back seeing the world for what it is. When Jesus commissioned his apostles to preach the gospel, he spoke to them openly and honestly about what they faced. In Matthew chapter 10, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. In verse 21, he says, Now brother will deliver up brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by for all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. If Jesus could speak to us personally today here in this assembly and call us to go out and preach the gospel to our neighbors and friends, to go to school and talk to your classmates about Jesus Christ, and to spread the gospel that you believe in, but this is the way that he said it, would you go? If he told you up front, they're going to hate you. They're going to despise you. They're going to persecute you. And they may even kill you. But go do it. And if you stick out to the end, you'll be saved. That's exactly what he's telling us. Go do it. Stick out to the end. And you'll be saved. Later in John chapter 16, after the apostles were called to be his witnesses. He says, These things have I spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogue. Yes, the time is coming when whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not, because they have not known the Father nor me. He says, But these things have I told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of it. See, Jesus wanted them to know up front. He wants us to know up front. 
The majority of the world does not care about the good news. But there's another element here. We have to understand what our mission is. Another, another element of the aspect of being able to not only know what is we face, but also to ward off the discouragement that is involved in the aspect of teaching the truth. What is our mandate as Christians? What is our mission? I want to begin with what it's not. Our mission is not to convert the lost. You say, well, wait a minute, preacher. Sure it is. Jesus said we should go teach the truth. That we should make disciples of all nations. So your first reaction to that statement, that it's not our mission to convert the lost, may be to object to it. God has certainly called us to be evangelistic. Our mandate is presented certainly in the example of the first century church in an unmistakable form. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 4. After they were scattered after the persecution of Stephen, they went everywhere preaching the word. That message, that word, is that message that's so hated that people don't care about. But the first century church went everywhere preaching that message. I believe a passage that helps me to better understand what God really expects of me is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul writes to the church at Corinth about his own interaction with those Christians in that church. He's making these comments as an answer to their desire to pledge themselves through human allegiance to certain individuals and divide themselves over who had taught them, who had baptized them over men rather than being in a single allegiance to Christ. And so he asked some rhetorical questions here in verse 5. Who then is Paul and who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. I believe this passage clearly outlines the parameters of my responsibility. Who am I? I'm a seed plant, like Paul. I'm a waterer, like Apollos. I'm a seed planter like Paul. I'm a waterer like Apollos. And therefore, you see, I go out and I teach the word. Jesus identifies the seed as the word of God, so I sow the seed... By going out and teaching people, sometimes people who have never heard about Jesus Christ, taking the scriptures to them and teaching others the truth. I water that by encouraging them to obey what they know and teaching them on further into the truth so that they can grow. So I plant and I water. That's my mission. This passage also tells me what's not my mission. It says God gives the increase. God gives the increase. You see, that's his job. That's what he does. He does that, and I cannot. This text then helps me properly analyze whether I'm being successful or whether I'm failing in my mission. When we teach people and they don't respond to God's word, when we sow the seed and it doesn't grow, when we let people know about Jesus and they do not care, that doesn't mean that we have failed in the mission. Because, you see, their conversion is not... My job, if I plant, then I've been successful. If I sow the seed, then I've been successful. So how will I judge the success? How do I judge my success? By the seeds planted, not by the harvest gathered. Now, that seems simple, but I believe that's so important to understanding how we face the struggle of a world that does not care about Jesus Christ. It doesn't lessen my responsibility. It doesn't shift it any place else. It puts focus right where it needs to be. 
I'm responsible to teach my neighbor. I'm responsible to take the gospel to the lost. And so as I focus on this aspect of fulfilling the mission, how can we spread the gospel among those who do not care? Knowing what our mission is, how should we relate to this? I want to share with you the perspective on our mission that I recently only began to take seriously, or at least to see it for what it was, where it was, after I read an article by Brother Edwin Crozier. And he was speaking about Luke chapter 8. You remember Luke chapter 8, that place where Jesus tells that familiar parable about a fellow going out and sowing seed in the field. We call it sometimes the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils. We know the story. A sower goes out and he broadcasts seeds out, and some of that seed falls by the wayside, the rocky, hard ground, that like pavement where everybody's been walking. And the birds come pluck it off before it ever takes root, and it's gone. Some of the seed falls in the ground that's rocky, where there's a little bit of soil on top, and then there's just rock, bedrock below it. So it sprouts up and starts to take a little bit of. It starts to come forth, but then it hits that rock hard, solid ground, and it can't penetrate, and the thing dies, and the sun comes up. And some of that. Seed falls among the thorns, where something else is growing, or something else has been planted, and they come up together, and the thorns choke it out, and so that which started to grow doesn't grow. But then some falls on good ground, and it brings forth a crop. Not just a little crop. Jesus says it brings forth a really big crop, because it's on the right, it's on the right soil. Now we recognize that this particular parable, first it reinforces our paradigm of unbelief. That most of the seed never brings forth a fruitful harvest. Three-fourths of it is wasted seed, so to speak. Only a fourth of it brings forth fruit. But this parable is also primarily about the result of the message. What it's telling us here is that the message, you see, it falls on this kind of ground, it brings forth a fruit. It's about the result. It's not primarily about the method, but I recently was given another perspective on that. When we consider the question of, what if I'm the sower? Now, I don't know what kind of soil my heart might be. You have to answer that for yourself, and I have to answer that for myself. But if you're the sower in this parable, what are you doing? Well, you're sowing the seed. Well, where are you sowing it? You know, this farmer and Jesus, the story's a little different than farmers that I've been around, and maybe that you know too. The farmers that I know, they're going to try and raise a crop. They go and they till the ground first, and they get rid of all the weeds. They take all the rocks out, and they turn the soil over, and then they go put the seed where the ground is good. They don't go out in their driveway and start throwing seed around. And if we saw a farmer out there throwing seed all over in the parking lot, and then we'd go, wait a minute, you're wasting seed there. But that's what Jesus' farmer does, isn't he? He just throws seed everywhere. Now, again, this parable is not about the method of how to sow seed. It's about the result of it. But I want us to recognize here that what Jesus, this crazy farmer, does is he sows seed everywhere. And the reason Jesus uses, I believe, this particular parable or story about this farmer that would not even have existed in Jesus. You think Jesus, as people, farmers in Jesus' day knew that seed wouldn't grow on the wayside? They knew that just like we know that. They till the ground just like we till the ground. But Jesus' as farmers is a little unique in the story, you see, because Jesus isn't really talking about sowing literal seed, is he? No, he's talking about sowing the word of God in the hearts of men. And that's different. It's the same, but it's different. In the sense that 
You and I can't tell about a person's heart until after we sow the seed. I can look at the ground and say, I don't think it's going to grow there. And I might be right looking at physical seed. But I may be absolutely wrong when I'm looking at the heart of a human being. How many of you would have Saul of Tarsus on your prospect list? Or the Samaritan woman? Is she a good person to sow the seed among? Or Matthew, the tax collector? You walk up to his desk and start sharing the gospel with him? You see, God can see hearts. I can't always see hearts. So what's he want me to do? He wants me to sow the seed everywhere. He'll give the interest. Just sow the seed. And so we think about this aspect of how we face the struggle of an uncaring world when we have the gospel with us. Is that we have to toss that seed out as much as we possibly can. How is that done? Well, it begins, I think it can begin in the simplest of ways. is introducing the subject of Jesus into a personal conversation. Into as many conversations as we can. That may lead to a Bible study or the answer of a particular social question that someone is struggling with. Make Jesus a part of our conversation. Put it out there where the seed can at least be planted. And the idea can be planted sometimes in the most suspect and unusual places. Another way that we sow the seed in a world that doesn't care is we share our lives as well. You allow the impact of the message to be seen in your life. Don't you... You know, you're sitting down to eat dinner and there's one of those calls that comes in and the, the answer to the call, it, it, it's telling you on your caller ID probably that you shouldn't, but you can't help but you answer it anyway. And so this real nice voice says, oh, hi, Dave, how are you doing? You think, oh, do I know this person? He called me by my first name. He starts talking to you about, about the family or he acts like he knows you, that he really cares about you. And you find out about two minutes in the conversation, he's trying to sell you something. How do you feel about that? You know, usually it's click. And not just click, it's... It's up. <laughs> you don't know me. You don't care anything about me. You're just trying to use this caring thing to try to get some, me to buy into something. And I tell you, folks, if that's the approach that we make with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're going to get a lot of hang-ups. A lot of clicks. Because people want to know whether or not we really care about them. And I don't buy into this idea that you have to build a personal relationship with someone before you ever teach them the gospel. I just mentioned we need to sow the seed everywhere. We need to do it with a general concern for the spiritual welfare of someone else. People believe that we really are living by what we're saying and that we're sharing our faith with a desire to truly change their lives for the better. Then the gospel becomes relevant where it wasn't relevant before. It becomes real to a a world that doesn't think the gospel is real because they're seeing it lived out in your life. They see something that's worthy of consideration because you're living it every day. We have opportunities to take the message of Christ into our lives by the way we handle adversity, by the way we respond to difficult people, by the way we deal with stress and disappointment in our lives. The way we respect and treat other people is a part of outlining the gospel for them before we ever speak a word. And it's so important in a world that does not respect the words of the gospel. If we display the fruit of the Spirit, it becomes an undeniable application of the word of God in our lives. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus said, as we mentioned before, he was sending them out as sheep among wolves, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. That word harmless there is interesting. It doesn't mean innocuous like a harmless little kitten, powerless. The term harmless there is the aspect of that which is with moral integrity, that which does not 
harm other people because it is off track. And so we have the aspect of being harmless. That means we need to spread the message of the gospel in the spirit of the gospel. And this concerns me some because I see a lot of individuals that have a moral perspective on what's right and wrong. And they see what's going on in our society. They see it going in the wrong direction. They see things being accepted that should never be accepted. And so they lash out on social media and they post this and they post that. And it appears to an uncaring world that here's someone that's caught up. In the virility and the hatred that's involved in many of the things that go on in our society. And they scratch us off. I think we've got to be careful, folks, that we don't get caught up in the rhetoric of social media and we lose our credibility. Or worse, we sin against God as we try to sin against the sins of our culture. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 3, we give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be ashamed. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, we have to learn to answer the questions about our hope. We have to spend some time in the Word of God and be able to answer the very serious and difficult questions that our culture will ask us. To ask for a reason for the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience so that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. We need to pray about the mission. Make sure I got that one up there. <laughs> we need to pray about the mission, though. We know what it is. We know what we're supposed to do. You've got to pray about it. You think about the apostles and the gospel in the first century. How much prayer was a part of that. In Acts chapter 14, Paul recorded that God had opened the doors of faith for him. Opened doors to Gentiles that he didn't think was going to be open. He prayed to God about it. He said, God opened those doors. James chapter 1. James tells us to pray for wisdom. Saying the right thing at the right time. And then there's Acts chapter 4. After Peter and John, the apostles, had been persecuted, even put in prison. God got them out of prison. They ran, to the, they, they ran to where the disciples were gathered together. And they were the disciples looking at what had happened to them and what was happening to the church in the first century. And they were praying. Praying about what? Lord, don't let this happen to us again. Please protect us from all of this. That might have been part of their prayers. But what the text says is they said, Lord, look on the threats and give us the courage and the boldness to speak. That's what we need, isn't it? We need the courage and the boldness to speak in the midst of those threats, to not quit talking about Jesus. And that's the last one. We can't give up. We can't quit. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Now, in conclusion, let me suggest to you that nothing I've said I don't think should discourage us from doing our job. If it does, then I maybe said it the wrong way, and you've missed my point. I'm not trying to discourage us from doing our job. If anything, facing the facts and understanding and analyzing our mission and understanding what God wants us to do and realizing that the power behind this is not in us but in God should encourage us and move us forward to go out and teach the gospel to people that do not care. I can't quit studying. I can't quit teaching my neighbor even though he does not care. I think about this from the context of the other people in the world who have before us that have faced these things. You know, we're not the first ones who face the obstacle of an uncaring world. Look at Noah and his generation. God described that for us. He was in a minority, wasn't he? Peter tells us that he was a preacher of righteousness. Noah wasn't sticking back saying, oh, those people are lost, I'm saved. I'm okay. hundred years he was preaching while he built the ark. 
I don't know what he was preaching, but Peter says he was preaching, and he was preaching righteousness. He was telling those people about right and wrong, and maybe about the judgment of God. I sort of imply that was what was going on. And in the end, after that hammering and that preaching and that waiting, how many people listened to what he had to say? Well, all we know is how many he took into the ark with him, and that was his family. That's who he saved. Maybe that's all you and I will say in the end. It's our family. But that's not discouraging. That's the work. And the power of the gospel. But then you think about as well. Times in which those who were really involved in. Trying to change their own world. For what was good. Got discouraged. I'm taken to 1 Kings chapter 19. And Elijah you remember the story after he had made such a. Phenomenal show of God's power on Mount Carmel. Prophets of Baal had been executed. Jezebel was still hunting for his head. And he ran, hiding out. And here was a man who was absolutely despondent. He was so discouraged. He says, I'm the only one left. No one cares about you. No one cares that Israel is an idol-seeking people. I'm the only one left. And he said, God, you just take my life too because it's all over. And God came to him and encouraged him. Built him back up again. How did he do that? Well, two ways. If, I look, if I'm reading the text correctly. What God said to Elijah in 1 Kings 19 was, there's work to do. He says, you get back up and you go out. And you appoint this fellow king. And if you won't listen to God, then we're going to send these people and they're going to do it. God was telling you, see, Elijah, that on the political, the moral stance of the nation, and even the political aspect, God wasn't finished working yet. And Elijah couldn't give up on this. God was going to do something. So he says, Elijah, you get up and do it. And then he tells him, you need to have hope. And I believe that's what God tells us. That we need to get up and get busy. Because God's not finished doing what he's going to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he gives us words of hope. And the words of hope are, you're not the only ones who will listen to the gospel story. You're not the only ones who care or are interested in the gospel story. There are millions of people out there that we don't know about that we haven't met yet that are going to be interested when they hear about Jesus. you believe that? They are. They are. And that's what he told Elijah. I have 7,000 have not bowed the knee to bed. They have not kissed his finger, kissed his hand. These people could care. Maybe God was saying these people already care. But certainly he was telling Elijah these people could care about what I'm going to do. And that's the way I think I have to look at this, isn't it? This is a tough world to preach the gospel in. There are so many people who I know and you know who do not care what God says and maybe never will. But the work of God's salvation goes on. The work of saving people, of bringing people into the fold of God, of forgiving sin, all of that work continues to go on. And whose work is that? Well, that's his work. That's my God's work. My master, that's what he is doing. And God will accomplish his work. Thank you for your attention tonight. As 
always, I think, it's important for us to understand in our own lives and perceive in our own lives the world that we live in from the lens of the scriptures and what God says. And maybe we've touched upon some of that tonight, that in the most seemingly most uncaring times in our own lifetime, in the darkest hours, that the gospel light is most needed. And beyond that, it may very well be that the gospel light will be its brightest because no one really cares. Thank you.